So today we're looking at John chapter 12, and uh, we'll be reading from verses 12 uh, to 19 uh, for Palm Sunday. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, sports fans can be a little bit fickle. Um, They can change their emotions very quickly, very easily. Uh, There's a soccer player. If you follow soccer, I'm sure you've heard of him. His name is Landon Donovan. Uh, He used to be kind of the face of American soccer for about 10 years. And when he was growing up, he grew up in California, and he used to have this shirt that said, life is soccer and the rest is the details. And he admits that soccer had kind of become his identity. But in 2012, 2013, he kind of hit a rough patch in his life. He experienced severe depression. He, his marriage dissolved, uh, and he had to take some time away from playing soccer. And he writes about that event and says this. He says, The pressure to perform and keep pleasing fans and coaches became too much. He says, You go out and do everything you can to make the fans feel good, make the coach feel successful, make the owner successful. He says, After the 06 World Cup, I realized clearly that it was a business and that it was fickle. I was foolish enough to think that these people who were showing me so much love genuinely liked me. But after the 06 World Cup Championship, people said, now you had a bad cup. We don't think you're that cool anymore. He said, that for me was a very eye-opening experience, and it made me very sad. But then he added, at the time, it was by far the hardest thing that ever happened to me in my life. There's a Seinfeld episode that Jerry Seinfeld, at the beginning of the episode, talks about this phenomenon, about how fickle fans can be. And he says it's hard to root for any one sports team for that long because you always have players that are swapping out. He says, really what you're rooting for is the shirts. You're rooting for the shirts. And he says you, have, you can have a player that's beloved by the fans and, then he, and they cheer for him. And then he goes to another team and all of a sudden, boo, boo, bad shirt, bad shirt. He says it's really about the shirt. It's not about the team. If you don't believe me, just wait till the Bills start again and listen to sports radio after the Bills have a big win, Josh Allen plays well, and then listen after the Bills play really poorly and Josh Allen plays really poorly. I mean, after they win, people are calling up and like, oh, can we get tickets to the Super Bowl? Like, we're going to the Super Bowl. We're the real deal. Josh Allen can take us there. But then there's a bad game and people are calling up and saying, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't even know if we're going to make the playoffs. Uh, I don't know if Josh Allen is really that good. I don't know if he can take us there. It's, it's one game, but one game can kind of change people's perception. 
Or sometimes, you know, you'll have a football game where people will dress up in all the gear. Uh, you know, they'll have sometimes people will paint stuff on their chest. They'll come to the game and they're they're screaming, they're yelling for the team, they're so excited. And then the team doesn't score any points in the first half. And then as the team is going to the locker room, they're booing the team. And one minute they're cheering, just a short time later, they're booing. Oliver Cromwell, who took the British throne away from Charles I and established the Commonwealth, said, once said to a friend, Do not trust to the cheering, for those people who shout would shout as much if you and I were going to be hanged. Such is the nature of fans, such is the nature of crowns. They can turn on a whim. And so we see in this passage that we're looking at today, as we remember Palm Sunday, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and the whole city is going crazy. At this time, there was probably about a million people that were in Jerusalem that had come to the Passover. Could have been even more than that, but probably about a million people in Jerusalem. They hear that Jesus is coming there, and they are going crazy. In John, it describes how they came out to Jesus with palm branches. Palm branches were a symbol of righteousness, and it was also uh, often used in the context of a victory in battle. The closest parallel that I can think of in our culture would be like the American flag. The American flag kind of represents who we are as a country and also is kind of a symbol of our strength as a country. And so it would have been as if people were coming out, honking their horns, cheering, waving their flags for Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. And so they're going crazy, showing their support for Jesus And they welcome Jesus as a liberator, the one who would free them from the the Romans, the one who would help their collective hopes and dreams come true. And they cry out, Hosanna, which means save us now. It was also a word that indicated praise. They call Jesus blessed, the one who's blessed of the Lord. They call him a king in verse 13. So how do you have a crowd that calls Jesus the blessed king who are just kind of going crazy cheering for him one moment and then just a few days later they're crying out with similar fervor crucify him crucify him what caused such a shift i think that the shift caught was caused because their worship was conditioned upon their expectations Their worship was conditioned on their expectations they had ideas of what jesus was going to do what Jesus was going to accomplish. And when Jesus kind of shattered, the, shattered those expectations, they were no longer willing to follow him. I, I think they wanted a leader and a God who would affirm who they were and who would take them where they wanted to go. In short, what they really wanted was a God who kind of thought like them. Professor Scott McKnight shares how uh, when he has an incoming class that comes into his, his class, he often gives them a test. And on this test, the first part is kind of a personality questionnaire. It's like, uh, when do you get grumpy? Uh, when do, do, do you get nervous? Uh, are you an introvert or extrovert? And they'll ask the same things related to how they think God is. And he'll use kind of different wording to kind of disguise the questions a little bit. But what he finds, and there's a number of other people who have done similar things, what they find is oftentimes people think that God is just like them. 
the characteristics that they hold, the personality traits, they think that God is just like them. There's a man by the, by the name of Ludwig uh, Verbach, who was not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. He actually was uh, opposed to Christianity in a lot of ways. But he said something I think is, is often true. And he said this. He said, the understanding is universal pantheistic, the love of the universe, but the grand characteristic of religion, and of the Christian religion especially, is that it is thoroughly anthropotheistic, the exclusive love of man for himself, the exclusive self-affirmation of the human nature. I think that's kind of our bent as sinful human beings. We want a God who affirms who we are and who will take us where we want, us, where we want to go. Remember back in the Exodus when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and then he gave them the Ten Commandments and the first commandment was you shall have no other gods before me and then the second commandment that he gives speaks of uh, the creation of idols or uh, in the King James I think it refers to it as graven images look at what the second commandment says in Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 to 6 it says this you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we think about the first commandment, that kind of makes sense. Nothing goes in place of God, in place of Christ. We don't put any idols before God. Then we get to the second commandment, and I've always kind of glossed over it, passed over it, because, you know, it's talking about carved or graven images, and how many of us, you know, we ha how many of us have this temptation to go home after church, go to the ba your backyard, cut down a tree, put a face on it, and bow down and worship it? We probably don't have that issue. If you have that issue, we really need to talk. But that's not something we struggle with. We don't struggle with bowing down to stone objects, wooden objects that we call gods. And so at least for me, when I've read this passage and, or you know, looked at this commandment, I tend to gloss over it. It's like it, it doesn't apply to me. I don't make idols. I don't make graven images. But I think when we look at kind of what is behind this commandment, I think that maybe we do more than we realize. Now, what would happen when someone would make an idol? They would cut down a tree, find a stone, and then they would carve an image of this God. And what would they do? They would carve the image in such a way that the characteristics that they thought were important about God or who they thought God was were prominent. And they would have these ideas of what God could give them. And so what would they do? They would make gods for different purposes. You know, if they wanted a good harvest, they would make a god of the harvest and give that god uh, certain attributes. A god of fertility, they would make a god of fertility. A god of war, they would give them victory in war. So whatever they thought God was, they formed it in, into this image. And wherever they wanted God to, this god to take them, they would make that the god that governed that particular category of life. And so what they're doing, in essence, is they're constructing gods, they're God's makers, they're making gods in their own image. This is who we think that God should be like, and this is where we think that God should take us. 
And while this applied to the construction of false gods, of course, you know, creating new gods, there was also a prohibition against making idols or making objects that represented the true God. And so in Israel, people were not to make, you know, to carve an image and say, all right, this is Yahweh, this is the true God, we're going to worship him. Even if they were worshiping the true God, they weren't to represent him in a stone or a piece of wood. Now, why was that the case? The reason that was the case was because when they would do that, it was prone to distortion. When I was growing up, maybe 10 or 11, um, my grandparents on my mom's side had four grandchildren at that time. And there was this person in the mall who would paint portraits. And my uncle paid quite a bit of money to have all of us grandchildren uh, on a painting, and then he was going to give it to my grandparents for Christmas or whatever the holiday was. So we put on our, uh, you know, our fancy clothes, and we go to the mall, and then we had to sit there while this artist paints our picture. Uh, and then we didn't get to see what it would look like until it was presented to my grandparents. And so my uncle got it, brought it to my grandparents, gave it to them on Christmas or whatever the holiday was, and I looked at this picture, and I was horrified. I, I was like, what, what is that? And, and I look, and I didn't have any eyes. It was like it was, the eyes were there, but they were just like the smallest little line. I, I was like, that doesn't look like me. Now, I know that I have really small eyes, but they do exist, right? I mean, they're, they're here, right? I mean, they could have put them on the picture. I mean, they're small, but they exist. And then, of course, my grandparents loved this picture, put it in the hallway. And every time I went there, I got to look at this picture. And every time I walked by, I was like, that's not me. That doesn't look like me. You see, the artist who made it, of course, there was an element of truth to it. I do have small eyes. But he took that element and distorted it in such a way that by the time he was done, it didn't really look anything like me. And I think that's exactly what happens when man creates an image of God. And when I'm talking about that, I'm not talking today about primarily a physical representation. We don't do that. But we do that in terms of the way that we construct God in our minds, who we think that God should be or what God should be like. So what does that look like today? Uh, maybe we've said or heard people say something like this, my God wouldn't send anyone to hell, or my God is a God of love, or uh, my God affirms uh, my vision of sexual ethics, whether that's uh, my God affirms the, the fact that it's okay to, to have sexual relations before marriage, or it's okay to view pornography, or homosexuality is okay. We say my God is this way, or my God is that way, or my God wouldn't do this or that, and what we're doing when we say, we're saying that is, in essence, we're being more accurate than we realize. We're saying, my God, the God that I've constructed, the way that I think that God should be is like this. And what we're doing is we're making a graven image. We're get, making God in our own image. And when we interpret God, it's almost always a distortion of who God really is. See, we can't worship a God who we create. We must worship the God who created all things. Uh, Voltaire once said this, If God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. 
And I think what we really want is we want a God that we can live with, a God that's comfortable. Uh, neuroscientist, philosopher, and famous atheist Sam Harris spoke to National Public Radio about artificial intelligence. And uh, apparently scientists believe that within 50 years, uh, artificial intelligence will get to a point that, um, it's, that the intelligence is greater than human intelligence. And they suggest that it will be the engine of its own improvements, that it will independently be able to do incredible tasks. Uh, Harris says that there's no technologi technological leap that's needed for, means to, uh, for machines to surpass us. He says we just need to keep going. He says the train is already out of the station and there's no brake to pull. He says, so this machine could think about a million times faster than the minds that built it. You set it running for a week and it will perform 20,000 years of human level intellectual work week after week after week. He says, how could we even understand, much less constrain a mind making this sort of progress? And he says this, he says, we have to admit that we're in the process of building some sort of God. He said, now would be a good time to make sure it's a God that we can live with. I think that's the God that we've always longed for, that our sinful hearts gravitate towards, a God that affirms who we are and takes us where we want to go, a God who never challenges us, who always leaves us where we are. Yet Jesus is not a God like that. Jesus is a God who shatters expectations. And we see that he does that in the Scripture. The people would expect that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem on a war horse as a victorious king, but he enters on a lowly donkey. They would expect that he would come with a sword ready to drive out the Romans, but he comes and conquers through sacrifice. They would expect that he would come and wear a crown of gold with jewels in it, but he comes and wears a crown of thorns. Every step of the way, Jesus upends people's expectations. They're not, he's not the person. It's not the God that they thought that he was. And the thing that's amazing about that is that's good news. That's good news for all of us. Praise the Lord that we don't serve a God who is like us, who has our opinions, who has our understanding of reality. We can't put God into a box. We can't fit God into our own expectations. Andrew Greeley writes this, if Jesus makes you feel comfortable with your agenda, then he's not Jesus. Once you domesticate Jesus, he isn't there anymore. As believers, we're bound to who God is, not to who we want God to be. And again, that is good news because the uncre uncreated God is far greater than any God that we could create. The uncreated God is far greater than any God that we can create. He knows more than we know. His ways are higher than our ways. Psalm 86 verse 8 says this, There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Christ's holiness, Christ's otherness, set-apartness, that is our only hope. I mean, imagine if Jesus would have come to the earth and would have fulfilled the expectations of this crowd. Imagine if he would have entered into Jerusalem on a war horse with a sword and driven out the Romans with blood. He might have achieved peace for Israel for a time. But think about it. Their hearts would have been far from God. 
Still their hearts would be separated from God. Still there would be no cross. There would be no resurrection. There would be no hope after the grave. But praise the Lord that He is holy. Praise the Lord that He knows better than we know. Napoleon Bonaparte once said this, Alexander, Caesar, and Hannibal conquered the world, but they had no friends. Jesus founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions would die for him. He's won the hearts of men, a task a conqueror cannot do. Praise the Lord for his holiness. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I think as Christians, we need a vision of who God is. And the truth is, when we see God for who he is, we no longer feel any desire to kind of give him pointers, to say, God should be this way, God should be that way. We are overcome with humility. We think about Isaiah chapter 6 and how he met uh, a vision of God in, in God's throne room and how uh, he was completely undone by that vision. He hit the ground. He said, woe is me. I am undone. Years ago, there was a pro golfer, famous pro golfer. I'm not sure his name, but he was golfing with some uh, other famous people, uh, Arnold, Arnold Palmer, um, uh, Gerald Ford, and Billy Graham. And after he was done golfing with those people, he came and was talking to a friend. And they said, what is it like to golf with the president? and with Billy Graham. And this pro golfer didn't mention anything about the president, but he said, I don't need that Billy Graham to be shoving things down my throat. And so he grabbed a bucket of balls, went to the drive range, and just was hitting them angrily. So his friend said, so was uh, Billy kind of rough on you out there? Was he kind of hammering you with religion? And with a sigh, this golfer said, no, he, he actually didn't even say anything about it. He didn't even mention it. Theologian R.C. Sproul commenting on this says this, Astonishingly, Billy Graham had said nothing about God, Jesus, or religion. Yet the pro stomped away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. What had happened? Simply this, the evangelist had so reflected Christ-likeness that his presence brought the same feeling to the pro as experienced by Isaiah. He knew he was lost, a man of unclean lips, and living among a people of unclean lips. In the life of Billy Graham, the lost pro had sensed the presence of our holy God. When we sense the holiness of God, we're driven to humility. And for those of us who are believers, we're driven to worship. But I think the sad reality is that most, many, maybe most, people don't wish, worship the true God. That's true even for people who are Christians. People who maybe raise their hands, who maybe serve in ministry, some even pastors, giving to the work of God, but when a trial comes, all of a sudden they're gone. Or people who do the same things, but also are living a different life. People who are worshiping God, but living in ways that are not pleasing to God. Like James says, how can from the same mouth come praising and then cursing? I'm convinced that many Christians in the American church are worshiping not the God of the Scriptures, but graven images. 
I think often we worship the God of our imagination rather than the true, holy, and matchless God. A God who affirms who we are and takes us where we want to go. Kyle Eidelman in his book, Not a Fan, says this, My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus but have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but actually aren't interested in following Christ. So the question I'd like for us to consider today is, are we worshiping the true, matchless, glorious God of the universe, the uncreated one? Or are we worshiping graven images, a God that we've created in our own mind, a God who would take us where we want to go and affirm who we are? Oswald Chambers puts it this way, Am I becoming more and more in love with God as a holy God or with the conception of an amiable being who says, oh, well, sin doesn't matter much. Oh, that we would be worshipers of the true and holy God. Oh, that we would be tethered to God's word, which reveals what God is like. Because the true, uncreated God is so much better than the God that we create in our minds. I'd like to close by reading from Revelation chapter 19 that speaks about the holy, matchless Christ, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one who is beyond all compare. Revelation chapter 19 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are the true, matchless, holy God beyond compare. We thank you that your ways are not our ways. We thank you that you didn't give in to the whims of the crowd and establishing your kingdom on earth, but you came to sacrifice, to die on the cross for our sins, to give us hope through your resurrection. We know that the reality of who you are is so much greater than any conception or graven image that we could make. Lord, help us to be people who are faithful to you, to worship you in all of your holiness, that we wouldn't wander away from who you are, that we would look to your word and who you've revealed yourself to be and worship you in all of your splendor and all of your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.